morning. Good morning. Yeah, it's on. How's everyone? If you turn to the book of James, we're going to be in James chapter 2. If you've been here, you should know that. You should already be there. Um, before we get started, um, kids, especially those kids who can read, if you're a child and you can read or an adult, Look up at me. Um, um, why are we here? I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody, so I'm not calling anyone out. We're here to glorify God, right? We're here to worship Him, right? And one of the ways that we do that is by listening. Um, one of the ways that we do that is by paying attention to the sermon, learning to interact with the sermon. This goes for adults as well. Um, but um, So if you, if you don't have an outline and you can read... I would suggest getting an outline. We're going to cover a lot, but I want to say this particularly for you because, well, for everyone, but I do know um, that there are some children that, that are wrestling with faith, whether or not they believe, are they a Christian, are they not? They're wrestling, you know, with the gospel. Have I been, you know, made a, a partaker of this? Um, and so today will be a very good sermon for you to listen to if that's you. And so, if you have an outline, you can read the outline. And if there are words, like analogy of faith, which we're going to look at this morning, if you don't know what that means, you can, I'm going to explain it, but if you don't grasp it all, you can go home and you can talk to your parents about it. And that's how we interact with sermons. And so, for all of us, um, I pray that's all of us here today, that we're all going to interact in that way. Um, but but uh, back to James chapter 2. Um, I, I say that because I love all of you kids. I really do. Well, all of you? Yeah, all of you. Um, no, I really do. Um, and so, James chapter 2, verses for today. Uh, we're starting a next section, which is 14 through 26. We're only going to cover a little bit of that. Prayerfully, you know, by the end of this, these two weeks, you know, James chapter 2, 14 through 26 is probably the most controversial in the book of James. Um, and so by the end of these two weeks, you know, I, I hope that you'll be able to say, ah, I don't know really what the fuss is all about. You know, hopefully we'll be able to um, grasp all of that well. So what is the fuss all about um, in this passage? You probably know that it's between Paul and James. Uh, maybe you don't, but that's what it's about. It's between Paul and James. So what's wrong with Paul and James? Were they friends? Were they actually enemies? What was going on between those two? Did they hang out? What was it like? Was it awkward when they met for goat milk and olives? You know, was it, what was it like for them? Was it difficult uh, for them to spend time? It, no, it's not so much about Paul and James as far as the people go, but the controversy that surrounds at least how people perceive what they're saying in their verses. And we're going to look at them specifically, Romans 3.28 and, and James chapter 2, really verse 24 this morning, and sort of hold them side by side. But the is- issue is, is salvation by faith alone, uh, or is it by faith plus works? So their goat milk meetings would have been something like this. When James offered to pay you know, for Paul's goat milk, did Paul side-eye James you know, and say, you don't have to do that, James, it's faith alone. James, it's faith alone, apart from works. You know? And then if Paul maybe refused to pay, did James sort of side-eye him and say, you know, come on, Paul, you who are rich in faith, faith plus works pay for the lunch. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it's about. Um, I worked hard on that, actually. 
And then I got no response from that. My wife said there would be no response from that, and that's what happened. Um, but the issue is, is salvation by faith alone, or are we saved by faith plus works? Now, we're going to get to that first. And that's going to be a large part of what we're, we're, we're actually going to talk about today. Um, and we need to do that because not getting what this is all about, this controversy and how to reconcile it, not getting that can lead to lots of difficult things. And you can sort of see them. I think I've listed a few um, in your outline. We talked about one actually in, in Sunday school this morning. But before we get to the, you know, the controversy at say, let me say, um, if you think we, that we've gotten out of the sort of uncomfortable dark forest of partiality, which was a difficult time for a lot of us, it exposed a lot of sin in a lot of us, um, but if you think we've gotten out of that, you know, you're mistaken. We, we haven't. We're still there. This, this passage deals with a controversy, and a lot of times readers of the text or preachers of the text or teachers of this particular text sort of jump over that because of the controversy. They jump right into the controversy, and they skip over really what this is addressing. And so we're still in this issue of, of how we treat one another. And so we're going to hopefully see how that all uh, fits together. And so James 2... 14 through 26, has continuity with James chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And so you see, I think I have in your outline, it says, my brothers, and, and, and then the word faith. We have that in verse 1, we have that in verse you know, 14. We have a poor person, in, 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 inadequately dressed. And so we have that in verse 2, we have that in verse 15. We have that phrase, you do well, which I cannot believe I have not gotten to in, in our, our time in this. And I don't think we will today, but, but you do well, verse 8 and verse 19. And then doing acts of mercy, verses 12 and 13 in the first section, and then verses 14 through 17 in, in the section that we're starting today. And that's really just a few similarities. We could, we could dig deeper and find a lot more similarities of how these two passages are sort of drawn together about how we treat others. And so this is big, and we can't, we can't forget that this is actually big because how we respond to others says a lot about our faith, and James has already been saying this, you know, as we've been going, not so subtly. <laughs> he's been pushing us to examine ourselves. Since this, you know, ever, even, this letter even started, he's challenged us in terms of who we are as far as, like, are we doers of the word or are we merely hearers of the word who, who always hear and never do? You know, are we, which person are we? And he's challenged us in far as, as far as our religion goes. And so remember that religion is the outward expression of our faith in Christ. It's not some liturgy, but the word being used there is an expression of our outward, an outward expression of our faith in Christ. And so, you know, our religion, our outward expression can be worthless. You know, if we, if we don't, you know, visit um, widows and orphans, if we're not keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And then last two weeks, we said, you know, basically the question has been, do you love God? And if you do, then you will love, you know, your neighbors as yourself. And you won't treat people based upon their outward experience or their outward you know, appearances. We won't treat people based upon what we think that we can, you know, get from them. And so if you show partiality, which is what that is, well, James said you're guilty of breaking the whole law every time you do it. So this week, he pushes us to look at ourselves even further. You know, what do you do when someone who has a very, a very big need, a very desperate need, and you have the ability to meet that need, what do you do? That's the question that James lays um, before us, how we respond says something about our faith. If we never meet the needs of others, well, James would say, then all likelihood your, your faith is dead. If you never do that, then in all likelihood you're, you're not a Christian at all. And so 
James has not lightened up on us. And so that, that's sort of the rub. Or is it faith without works? It's just worthless. So what does that mean? I thought we were saved by faith alone. So that's what we're going to start with. We're going to start with the sort of controversy. Uh, I think most of us get what James is saying when he says what he says in verse 24 about faith and works. But I don't want to rush through this too quickly because while I think most of us get that, we might struggle to articulate it you know, really well. And we need to be able to articulate this um, really well. And as I said earlier, a bad grasp of this can lead to, to even worse stuff. Now, we're probably not going to get to a lot of that today, but hopefully next week. So we'll start with the controversy. How to deal with a controversy like this. So in their own words, Paul verse, I think I put it on the outline so you don't have to switch over. But Romans chapter 3 verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So underline justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we can see why people struggle you know, with this, why there is some controversy. Um, how is there no con- um, contradiction? Well, we have rules for this. We, we have rules to help us understand how to do this. And it's called, I think I've already mentioned it, the analogy of faith. Right, so to avoid misunderstanding apparent contradictions, we need to interpret the Scriptures based upon this analogy of faith. And what that essentially is, is interpreting scriptures. Scripture interprets uh, Scripture. And the basic idea is this. When we come across verses that are not real clear, we then look to verses that are clear to give us understanding of the meaning of the ones that are not you know, real clear. And so the London Baptist Confession says this. Um, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So this is saying, of the analogy of faith, that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's our method of interpreting Scripture. <laughs> um, but there's something, I think, even more foundational that helps us, where that sort of comes out of, and that's this. All of Scripture is in agreement and does not contradict itself. All of Scripture is in agreement and does not contradict itself. So 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is, is breathed out by God. So if there is no contradiction in God, then there's not going to be any contradiction in the Word that He breathes out, right? And if that's the case, then the Spirit who moves men along or He blew into or through you know, James and Paul, there's not going to be any contradiction, 2 Peter 1.21. So there's not going to be any contradiction. So putting all that together, because there's no contradiction in God, therefore there can be no contradiction in His Word. Therefore there can be no contradiction between Paul and James. So they are friends who drink goat milk and eat olives together in peace. That's what we get out of that. Come on. But how do we use the analogy of faith to reconcile you know, these apparent contradictions. So first, we give priority to the clear passage. And so we're going to give priority here to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, because on an even deeper, even deeper level, we're going to give priority to the book of Romans over the book of James, because when it comes to how salvation works, that's Paul's whole point in the book of Romans. He's unpacking the gospel and showing what it means to be, you know, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so Paul and James have very different intentions as far as their letters go. Paul is, as I said, making the case of the gospel. He's saying, he's t- talking to people who love the law. Well, Paul also loves the law, Romans chapter 7, but not because it saves, because it cannot save, but he, he's writing to people who love the law because they think it can save. 
James is writing to people who have believed the gospel but have some issues with how that faith in Christ works itself out into our life or how it affects our life, like the use of our words, like visiting orphans and widows, like showing partiality, among other things. And so I, th- I think a good place for us to start with all of that is to see what the one message of Scripture is in regards to salvation. And so we'll begin there. Um, the Bible's one clear message of salvation. That begins with God only accepts perfect righteousness. So, so Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This, Jesus repeats the same thing, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is, is perfect. So what does that mean for us? Be holy as God is holy. <laughs> That's the standard. Be holy as God is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is is perfect. So what does that look like for us? We've already looked at this last week. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus says, and the one that's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so perfect righteousness looks like this. Everything we do, say, and think must be done, said, and thought out of love for God and out of our love for our neighbor. Everything, everything we do, say, and think must be done, said, and thought out of love for God and out of love for our neighbor. That's a problem, isn't it? Because this kind of righteousness, this perfect righteousness that God requires is not found in us. So we quoted this last week, Romans chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None of us does, says, or thinks out of love for God and love for our neighbor all of the time. Because of the fall, sin has affected everyone to the very core of their being. And so Isaiah 64, 6 says, you think you're going to bring righteous deeds to God while they're just filthy rags. They're polluted rags. They're polluted garments. So you think you're bringing something good. God's going to be impressed with you. No. The very best that you bring, that you could possibly bring, is nothing but a filthy rag. And so our problem now has been expanded. God only accepts perfect righteousness, and we don't have perfect righteousness, not even close. Fortunately, this perfect righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus did fulfill the law. From our side, it's by obeying God's law perfectly. Or as First Peter, also First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He died on the cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserved for all those who would believe. And so Christ lived under the law as a substitute. He died on the cross as a substitute, was raised from the dead as a substitute. So we have a problem, but in Christ, God has provided a solution. In Christ, God has done what the law could not do as it was weakened by our own flesh. And so that's Romans 8, 3 through 4. So Christ kept the law in our place. Christ died for our breaking of the law in our place. How does that apply to us? Well, that's the rub here. For His perfect righteousness is made ours by grace through faith in Christ. And so there we have it. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We hold that one 
is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's the Bible so far clear message regarding salvation. We receive Christ's perfect righteousness by faith, by believing, not by working. So then, what do we do with James' words in James 2.24 that says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Well, they're speaking about two different things. And how can we say that? How, how can they be talking about two different things when they're using basically the exact same words? Well, here's an example. Daniel calls me old all of the time. I know it's not, it's not easy. It hurts a lot of the time. It hurts really bad sometimes. When he says I'm old, he means that I should probably get my will together. I also say I'm old. But what I mean by that is I'm wise and sophisticated. Is what I'm sure you agree. Which one? Let's take a... No, just kidding. It's the same thing with Paul and James. They use the same words in a different way. So for faith, Paul says, you know, the faith that Paul's talking about, Romans chapter 3, it's a faith that saves. Now, we're going to sort of go into faith a bit more in just a moment, but Paul is talking about a faith that saves. And James is talking about a faith that doesn't, can't. Um, so we'll get to that. Justification. Paul is talking about a legal declaration made by God that the believer is righteous. Not that we are actually righteous, not that we're righteous in actuality, but that we're declared to be righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us through, through faith. So Paul says we receive Christ's righteousness through faith and God declares us justified or righteous. Innocence is thrown in there, but it's righteous that, that's being, you know, also. James is talking about the validation of a claim. So for Daniel, my gray hair and my bum shoulder are justifications of his claim that I'm old. For James, works are the justification that a person's claim upon faith in Jesus being real, you know, it's a validation. So, so, so speaking of works, look at Paul's word work in, in Romans chapter 3. If it's on your outline, you can look at it there. It's works of the law. So again, remember that Romans is about people who are trying to say they have a, a good standing with God because they, they keep the law. They don't, but that's what they think, and that's what Paul means. You can't be saved. You cannot be justified by those kinds of works. But that's not how James is using the word, works. So what does he mean? Well, think of the context. Works are showing, not showing partiality. Or works are visiting widows and orphans in their distress. Or works are persevering in trials. Or works are control of the tongue for the sake of the, the building up or the edifying of others. For, for James, works are fruits that give evidence of, or, or proof that a claim upon faith in Christ is true that our faith is alive. Paul uses the same sort of wording. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works of the law, and that's what he means there, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He uses a little word there to... to, to uh, you know, cue us in on something. He puts good in front of the works at the end there 
And he's talking about works that flow out of our salvation, being saved by grace through faith. Good works flow out of that naturally. That's a statement we need to remember. For both Paul and James, works are the natural result of the natural outward expression of a living faith in the person of Jesus Christ, as far as Paul in Ephesians 2 and James in James 2. Which brings us to the fifth statement we need to add about the Bible's clear message about salvation. So God only accepts perfect righteousness. We don't have that. Christ does, though. We receive His righteousness by faith, and when we do, it bears fruit. It works. That's number five, living Saving faith is not ever fruitless. Living, saving faith is not ever workless. So now, let's look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Our introduction is now over, and we can enter into the body of the text. Literally. But it's going to be short, because we're going to come back to this next week. Um, so bear this, all these things in mind as we, as we read this. James is not addressing the first four of our Bible's clear statements. He's addressing number five. He's assuming number one through four, but he's addressing number five. He's assuming one through four because he understands what the clear message of the Bible is regarding salvation. Um, He knows this. Uh, Spirit inspired him, but he's hitting number five. So read with me verses 14. Let's start in just 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. So here's how he builds his argument. Really takes us all the way down through verse 26, but we're only going to cover through verse 19, hopefully, today. And so he starts with a question, and then he gives an answer, and then he'll prove it at the end. The proofs come next week. So first there's the question, second is the answer. That's what we're looking at today. So what's the question? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Feel the weight of that, (laughs) of what he's saying. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So let's go back to faith. What does James mean by faith? We can assume that James is assuming that this person who is claiming to be saved, you know, believes some basic truths, maybe the first four that we talked about. But the person's orthodoxy here is, is really not in question. It's, it's, it doesn't go much further than that, but the, the issue is, is Christ. It is, it, he, he's assuming some basic elements in their belief about, about the person of Jesus Christ. So, what, so, so again, what is faith? And so I, I have it in your outline. It's three things. It's a pretty standard Reformed answer. I just didn't use the Latin terms. Um, because if I did, I wouldn't be able to say them, and you'd think I'm dumb. And so, anyway, so first thing is knowledge. Um, knowledge of what? Knowledge of Jesus Christ and the claims that He's made about Himself. He's God. He's the Son of God. He observed the law perfectly. Uh, he came to die um, 
on the cross for all those that the Father gave him. He rose from the dead. Facts like that. Can knowledge of those facts save you? Of course not. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. Hear the sarcasm there? (laughs) You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. We cannot be saved by knowledge of the facts alone. This, 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 this first act of faith is not enough. Cal- Calvin actually calls this frigid faith. Like the, the knowledge, just bare knowledge of the facts, it, he calls it frigid faith. Well, the demons have frigid faith. They, they go beyond that. They actually shudder before Christ. And these people are just doing nothing. So, um, so, so, so this can't save us. So... Uh, Everyone in here, I would assume, knows the bare facts that we're talking about regarding Christ, regarding the gospel. I don't think there's anyone who you know, climbed out from under a rock this morning, right? No rock dwellers. Probably all growing up in North Carolina, wherever you were, it doesn't really matter anymore, I guess, but we just came out of Christmas. You, you know the bare facts of, of who Jesus Christ is. You know those. Well, it's not enough. It's not enough to know that. So then there's also assent. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you've not only are you aware of these bare facts, but you have a conviction that these things are true. You believe them to be true. So look at verse 19 again. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And as I said, shudder. The demons have some conviction about what they knew about Christ. And so are the demons saved? No. And so knowledge and assent Believing that these things about Christ are true, that still isn't enough to qualify as, you know, saving faith. So not only do we not have any rock dwellers in here, are there any atheists in here? There might be. There might be one or two in here. Um, I would suppose that there's not, but maybe there is. I'd love to speak to you afterwards. But I would believe that everyone in here has a conviction that the things that we've talked about in terms of Christ are true. You believe them to be actual true facts. That's still not enough. So we'll come back to you know, trust in just a moment. We'll go back to James's question. That's the third one is trust. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What good is it to have knowledge and conviction without works? I guess it depends on what the person thinks is good, right? Now, if the per- person has awareness of, the, of, this, of these bare facts and he's assented to a conviction that these things are true but there are no works to follow. He's not working. And so I guess when someone comes to him with a need and he turns them away, I guess he saves money. I guess it's worth something to him. Or if there's someone in distress like a widow or orphan who needs to be visited and he doesn't do that, I guess he saves time. Energy, I guess that's something to him. That's not James' point, you know, weigh the costs, weigh the values. He's saying that's worthless. Um, So it's not enough to have bare knowledge and um, just conviction. So let me give an illustration. Let's say there's a kid named, oh, I don't know, Steve. It's me. This is my story. Um, I'm not going to say, you know, Steve grew up in, no, I grew up in Livingston, Montana. I grew up in a Christian home, but I use that term pretty loosely. When I was a kid, at the time that I was a kid, I would say the only one that had any assurance that they were a believer was my mother in the house. 
I don't think anybody else in that house could say that they had assurance, if they understood what that meant, um, that uh, they were believers. But my sister, when I was pretty little, I can't even remember what, how old I was, but she talked me into reciting the sinner's prayer. And so then I asked Jesus into my heart. Go figure, there was no Bible verses quoted. But I asked Jesus into my heart. And you know, a little bit later, I can't remember how long, I was baptized. So I grew up believing the wholeheartedly that I was a Christian. I went to church three times a week. I went Sunday morning, I went Sunday night, and I went Wednesday night. I never missed. Not because I wanted to, not because I loved to, but because my parents made me. But I wore those as badges. Um, I went to youth group, youth group trips, <laughs> did many mission trips across the state of Montana. But then I, then I went to college, and I stopped going to church um, completely unless I was home on the weekends or, you know, holidays or, you know, whatever. And I did unspeakable things that I wouldn't want to talk about. After a couple of years in, in, in Montana, going to college up there, I then moved to Texas to go to college. That's actually where I met Sonny. Um, hands down, best thing that's ever happened to me is meeting her, except I also met Jesus there. Um, before Texas... Before I'd gone to Texas, before I met Christ truly, if, if I'd have been asked, are you a Christian? I would have said, yes, of course. Obviously, I'm a Christian. If they'd have asked me, you know, why, why do you think that? Why would you say that? Well, I would nervously say something like, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. I said the sinner's prayer. I've been baptized. I have a Bible. I pray. Do you have any idea how many times I've walked the aisle to rededicate my life to Christ? But if I had died doing any one of the crazy things that I used to do in those days before Texas, I would have gone to hell. I would not have gone to heaven. I would have justly and rightly, despite thousands of trips to church, despite mission trips, despite all those things, I would have rightly and justly gone to hell. Because there was not one iota of change in my life other than that I had a knowledge about Jesus. I believed them to be true. I was convinced that they were, that the Bible, that the gospel was true. But I never had trust. And that's the third act of faith. This means I trust Jesus with everything. I trust Christ for my salvation and nothing else. I had banked my assurance, I had banked my salvation on propositions and promises. The object of saving faith is not a proposition. Christ died for sinners. That's a proposition about Jesus. I believed he died for sinners. And because of that proposition and because that had become the object of my faith, that proposition, I believed I was a Christian. Also, object of our faith is not a promise. God promises to forgive sinners. That's a, that's a promise about Christ. I agree with that promise. I claimed that promise for myself. Therefore, I believed that made me a Christian. But gospel propositions and gospel promises, those are good. Those are important. But 
promises and propositions are not and must never be objects of our faith. The object of saving faith is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of saving faith, of true faith. We are not justified because we assent to and agree with propositions or promises. We are justified because we believe in a person and wholeheartedly trust Him for the righteousness we need. Trust Him for the payment of our sins through His death that we need. So, so one more thing. So, so it's saving faith is wholeheartedly believing and resting alone in the person of Christ. Not a prayer you said, not an aisle you walked down, not something your aunt led you through, or like in my case, a sister. Not a proposition, not a promise, but the person of Jesus Christ. But one more thing. To believe in Christ is to entrust myself and my salvation entirely to Him, but it is also to take Christ to myself. And so in John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58, just listen. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the Father has ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's crazy imagery, right? Like, he is pushing it. <laughs> he's pushing them away, is what he's doing with this sort of language. Some, some say, well, Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper, you know, the bread representing his flesh, and the, the juice or wine representing his blood, but these people would have no concept of that. The people that he's speaking to did not have that concept whatsoever in mind, and so he's not you know, pointing us to. We can use that to help us understand the, the Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine. But he, while he's talk, giving a metaphor, he's not requiring us to eat of his physical flesh or drink his physical blood. It's more than a metaphor. And there is something very real going on there when he talks about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. That's taking him into ourselves. That's also saving faith. It's entrusting myself and my salvation to him entirely. And it's to believe that he is the very best thing to live on. That Jesus is my protein. I'm big on health right now because that, that whole, you know, New Year's Eve stuff. Jesus is my protein. He's my vegetables. He's my vitamins. He's whatever else we need for our bodies to be healthy. He's our ice cream, but uses it for good. You know. But saving faith takes Jesus to ourselves and keeps taking Jesus to ourselves. How, how many of you eat on a Wednesday, and then when Friday rolls around, you say, ah, I'm good, I ate on Wednesday? <laughs> of course not. You eat every day two or three times because you know you need it. Same with Christ. 
Saving faith is not a one-time event. It's not punctiliar. I don't know what, that's a real word, but I don't know why in, on this it does a little red line under it. But maybe I spelled it wrong. But it's not a one-moment thing. Saving faith doesn't happen at one specific time, like a prayer, like walking down an aisle. It's ongoing. So I'm talking about food, right? And so you're probably getting hungry. We have a chili cook-off, right? Is that today? We have a chili cook-off going on. And I said no to being a taste tester. That was a big mistake probably. But but we have chili over there. And so I say food and you're probably getting hungry. Well, I say, Jesus, you should be getting hungry. You should be getting thirsty. (laughs) Saving faith is not a a one-time event. It's a continual taking Christ to ourselves. We do that through various things. I say all the time, means of grace, through the reading of the Word, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, through worship that we're doing here, through the Lord's Supper that we're going to take in just a moment. So back to the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Jesus, James then gives the example, if a brother or sister is poor, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Uh, we're going to come back to this person next week because we don't have time to do that today because we do need to talk about how the church relates to the poor. Um, and there are some qualifications that we must make in order to understand how to properly, biblically do that. But notice in the example, someone comes and needs the very basics to live, food. And what does the other guy do? He prays for him. How pious. He prays for him and sends him on his way. Again, James says, what good is that? What good is that? It doesn't do anything to alleviate the basic need whatsoever. Nothing. And that's James' point. So can that faith save? An answer, verses 17 and 18. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Can that faith save? No, it's dead. No matter what you say, if there are no works and there's nothing visible, it's not pointing to anything. And that's a really important thing to understand. Number five on our list. The true saving faith is never invisible. It can't be invisible. True saving faith by nature must show itself. And so here's the difference. Saving faith will not turn someone away who is in need because Christ did not turn that person away when he was in need. We've taken Christ to ourselves. We are in Christ. He's in us. We can't turn away. Again, we're going to talk about this next week and how we do this, but we can't because Christ did not turn us away. To turn him away because we need money, we want our money when we have it to offer is saying money's better than being like Christ. Saving faith will not show partiality toward people based upon outward experiences because Jesus didn't show partiality toward us based on irrelevant distinctions. So if we show partiality, our works are saying that what we, what we see when we receive the face of, of others, that is more relevant than the image of God that they were created in. Saving faith will visit or, or, widows and orphans in their distress because Jesus was gentle and lowly with us in our distress. We were bruised reed and he didn't break us. We were a barely burning ember and he did not stuff us out. Saving faith will, will use his words to build up others because we are nourished and strengthened by God's words as we see Christ in them. Saving faith, we could go on and on and on. 
saving faith will always show itself because saving faith unites us to Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. There's no way it can't show itself. And so can a faith that never works, can a workless faith save? No. No. It's impossible. Luther, who did not like the book of James, called it a straw epistle, puts it at the end, did not understand the analogy of faith to be able to reconcile these two together, said this, though, in his preface to Romans. Speaking of faith, oh, it is a living faith. Oh, it is a busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing some good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it's already done it. (laughs) And it's constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith in good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. My contention here isn't that we're going to be perfect in our works. Our fruits are not going to, to be shining and glistening and, you know, all of the time. But if there is never works in all the ways that we've discussed or James has, there is no way that that, safe, that faith can save you. And so also think back. I don't know everyone here. Think back. What did you put your faith in? A proposition, a promise, or was it in the person of Jesus Christ? If it's in the person of Jesus Christ, you'll never grow. You'll continually be hungry and thirsty for him. And so if that's you here this morning, maybe you know you're not, or maybe you're not sure if that's you. I would love to spend the afternoon speaking to you. I'll probably be a little grumpy. I'm hungry, kind of tired. But I would love to speak to you about Jesus. And there are a bunch of people in this room that would, be, would love to do the same thing. And I say that to the children and to the adults. Get your, your parents' permission, though. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, your goodness to us. And you are so good to us to give us your word and to give us very difficult words, as, as James has proven to be. And we're just in chapter two. But Father, we thank you for that because where you show us our sin, you also give us the ability as believers, as those who are already yours, the ability to kill those sins, to mortify them, and then to have fruit and grace vivified within us. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that. If we are yours, open our eyes. If we're not yours, if there's someone here today, and I know there's someone here today who does not know you, adult or child, whatever, I can't see that, but you do. And so, Father, I would ask that you would descend upon their knowledge and conviction as you did mine. And give them trust. Give them faith even this morning. That they may embrace Christ. 
and they receive him to themselves and he to them or them to him. And Father, now as we are about to partake of this supper as a means of grace, we pray that you would use these elements to feed us, to nourish us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.